This book is the Word of God. You can build your life on the Word of God. You can trust the Word of God. You can depend on the Word of God for now and for eternity. How many of you here believe that today? A lot of lot of skeptics in the world. Maybe you know some of them. And there always have been people who doubted the Bible. They said, oh, the Bible can't possibly be true. And they've always had their arguments, you know. Sometimes they're really highfalutin arguments. They're uh, learned and uh, scholarly arguments. A scholar long ago said, it's impossible that a man named Jesus was crucified in a Roman crucifixion because those of us who are in the know and who are educated, we know that Roman crucifixion was never practiced in Judea in the first century. Well, they don't say that anymore. And the reason they don't say that anymore is because there's been a multitude of archaeological evidence that Roman crucifixion was common in the first century in Judea. Nobody says that anymore. Those books are out of date, but the Bible is a book that you can, you can build your life on the Bible. They say Herod, the not so great. Uh, the Bible says that Herod, the not so great, he murdered the infants in Bethlehem. Remember that in the Bible? They say, well, that's the only place that says that. There's no place else in antiquity that mentions anything about Herod murdering babies. But then they studied the life of Herod more, and they discovered that Herod was really not so great, that he wasn't against, he was a, he was a paranoid guy that wasn't against killing his own wife and some of his own children. And so it wouldn't be beyond him at all to kill babies when he thought there would be a rival to his throne. So those books are old, and they're antiquated, and they're out of date, but we can still build our lives on the Bible because it's the Word of God. There's a wealth of evidence in the Bible that we can look at. When we were in the Holy Land, did I tell you we went to the Holy Land? Um, when we were in the Holy Land, I asked Lois, take a picture of me by this little cave. You see that little tiny cave off to my right there? This is a very significant thing. I heard about this all of my life. And so I said to Lois, please take this picture because I want my dad to see this picture. Because when I was a little boy, my dad said, has anyone ever told you the story of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls? And the major discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was in that cave right there. A powerful evidence of the accuracy of the Bible. Now, we don't need all of that stuff, but it's a lot of fun, isn't it? Those little evidences are just kind of extras. They're kind of like dessert after the main course. But we can build our lives on the Word of God. The Bible is reliable. And in thousands and thousands of years of digging, no one has ever dug up anything to prove that the Bible is inconsistent in any way. No one has ever dug up anything in archaeology to show any inconsistency of the Bible, but hundreds and hundreds of times people have dug up things to prove that what the Bible says is true is true. You can build your life on the Bible. Now I'm going to give you another example of that today in our text. It's Matthew chapter 11, and I'd like you to take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 11. Now you might have a Bible on a phone, you might have a Bible on an iPhone or an iPad or a phone, that's cool. You go ahead and look at your Bible and there. There's a way to annotate that. Nothing wrong with that. I would encourage you to do that. Here's one little thing I thought about this week I wanted to tell you, and that is this. You also might consider having a printed copy of the Bible that you write in, that you mark up, and that you bring to church with you. It's not a right or wrong, either or thing. It's fine if you use your phone. That's all right with us. But one thing that I would say is that you want to wear out a copy of the Bible. You want to get a copy of the Bible. You want to be a serious student of the Bible. You want to know where things are found. You want to know your way around in the Bible. I just noticed that people who are strong in the Lord usually have a worn out Bible. 
That's why I suggest you wear out your Bible. And by the way, you know, every, every Sunday, what we're going to do, every Sunday without fail, we're going to go to this book, the Bible, and we're going to teach a chunk of this book, the Bible, God's Word. You can build your life on it. You can rely on it. You can depend on it. And its, its author is God, and its subject is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our text today is Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. And I'd like you to stand with me, if you will, while we read the Word of God. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. This is talking about Jesus. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in that day of judgment than for you. Be seated. I want to talk to you today from this text about the cities that were worse than Sodom. And what we're going to be talking about here is especially about the judgment of God. Now, Jesus has been presented as who he is. He's been presented as Messiah. He's been presented as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's been presented as a miracle-working God. And Matthew's done a faithful job at presenting this. Matthew's also called in the statements and the, and the teaching and the preaching of Jesus himself. Now we're 10 to 11 chapters into this, and we have gotten a pretty full portrait of who Jesus is. But now in chapters 11 and 12 of Matthew, what you notice in Matthew's uh, chapters 11 and 12 is different responses to who Jesus is, how people respond. And last week, you remember that little th- thing where we were talking about they were like pretending they had little children pretending they had a wedding, but nobody was going to celebrate and little children pretending they had a funeral, but nobody was going to mourn. And Jesus said, that's what you're like. No matter what I do, you've made up your mind. You're not going to participate. You're not going to be happy. You've rejected me. Now, these cities where Jesus did his miracles and most of his miracles in his ministry, these three cities were, were cities there on the north, uh, primarily on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus did hundreds, literally thousands of miraculous things that the people saw. And, and then he, as he, he turns the corner, there's definitely a break between verse 19 and verse 20 because of the construction of the language. He, he turns and he, he gives them a rebuke. Understand that Jesus' rebuke is a grieved rebuke. When he says, woe to you, he's like forecasting doom. It's bad. It's the opposite of blessing. So if I say woe to you, it means bad things are coming. doesn't necessarily mean I like it. I'm just telling you the truth. Woe to you, bad things are coming. And that's what Jesus is saying. He began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works, which means his miracles have been done. Because they didn't do what? Because they didn't repent. He was looking for them not to just admire what he was saying. He wasn't looking for support for his cause. He wasn't looking for like people that would take notes. He wasn't looking for people that could add to their already vast knowledge of spiritual things. And to who could nod in assent. He was looking for people that would hear what he said and completely change their lives. Uh, can I tell you that he's still looking for people that will do that today. There are a lot of people that will not. Oh, yes. Thank you, Jesus. I, I love Jesus, too. I, I, you know, I checked the box. I went to church. I sang the song. I gave a little money in the offering. He's looking for people that are willing to repent, which means you completely change your mind and your will and your emotions and the direction of your life is changed. It's a big Bible word for change. 
And he said they would face the judgment of God because they didn't repent. What you notice from four things about judgment here in this passage. First, those who aren't saved, those who don't repent and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation, will face the judgment of God. That's what the scriptures say. And this is what he's getting at here. He's not really talking about the cities. He's using them in a poetic way, although you'll see in a moment that it's true about the cities, but it's specifically true about the people themselves. Because those people didn't repent. They will face the judgment of God. And it won't be good for them. They saw what Jesus did. They were interested. They were perhaps entertained. They may even have benefited in some way from what Jesus did, but they didn't repent. Jesus said, woe to them. You're going to face judgment and it won't be good for you. Now, it's important that we understand this. This is the consistent message of the Bible. God holds us accountable. God holds us accountable for the things that he's taught us. and things He's going to judge. I hope you'll come back tonight. I hope it's your practice is to give the Lord's day to the Lord. And that you'll come back at 6 o'clock service tonight. Because you're going to meet one of the most interesting characters of the Bible. He was a man who was called of God out of a secular vocation in order to cry out that God is going to judge. He's going to hold people accountable. This is the consistent message of the Bible. This is the way God was in the Old Testament. This is the way God was in the New Testament. And this is the way God's going to be in the future. This is the way that God is today. He holds us accountable for everything. This is the clear teaching of this passage. As he goes into talking to these two cities, initially he talks to Chorazin and Bethsaida. Later on, and he, 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 he compares them with Tyre and Sidon, which to people from Chorazin and Bethsaida, good Jewish people, the people in Tyre and Sidon had done many more filthy and repugnant things. They despised the people of Tyre and Sidon. Phoenicians they were, and they weren't godly people. But the people, so this was a, a, a very direct thing that Jesus said to them. And then later on, he's going to compare Capernaum. He's going to say, Capernaum, you think you're lifted up to heavens, but you're going to hell. And you're, you're worse than Sodom. And of course, obviously, even today, we realize that if somebody compared your city with Sodom, it would not be a favorable reference, right? He's saying, you're worse than Sodom. You're, he said of Bethsaida and Corazon, you're worse than Tyre and Sidon. And he said to Capernaum, which is actually temporarily his hometown, hometown of Peter, he said, you are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. There's judgment coming. And if they had seen what you had seen, they would have repented. They wouldn't be judged. So those who aren't saved will face the judgment of God. Now, just this is a basic thing that you probably knew before you came to church. You say, hey, pastor, I knew that. People that aren't saved, they face the judgment of God. That means they, they go to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. But do you, do, my question to you this morning would be, so you believe that? Really? Do you really believe that? Because I think what we really believe affects our life. It affects the way we behave. It affects the way we talk. It affects the way we live. So the question would be, do you believe that those who are not saved will face the judgment of God? The question that I would ask you is, are you sure you're saved? I'm not saying that you're a professor. I'm wondering if you know that you're saved, that you've repented. Would Jesus consider you a person that's repented so that you won't face the judgment of God? That's kind of the clear teaching of this. The second thing about judgment to notice is that judgment, interestingly enough, will be in degrees. In other words, there are some sins that are worse than others. Did you know that? Do you know how common it is for people to say all sins are the same and no sins are worse than others? That's just not true. Now, the reason it gets traction is this. There's a sense in which all sins are enough sin to go to hell, right? So I don't have to commit murder to go to hell, do I? 
I can have hatred in my heart towards somebody, and I'm guilty of murder, according to Jesus in the, when he was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. That's enough of a sin to be guilty to go to hell. So if you, well, you say all sins are the same in the sense that any sin is enough sin to condemn a person to hell, then I would agree with you. I would say that's true, but all sins are not the same. All sins don't have the same consequences. They just don't. All sins aren't as heavy or as weighty as other sins. Now, maybe what you're saying, a lot of times I think when people say this, all sins are the same, what they really mean is this. I think that God hates hypocrisy more than he hates, like, say, some people when they get involved in sins of the flesh, like drunkenness. And I would say to you, that's probably true. Because Jesus really had some very direct things to say to religious hypocrites. He was just always teeing off on religious hypocrites. And yet he would call to repent and sinners that were kind of broke and they were involved in sins of the flesh. And he would sometimes be with them. And he would be criticized for being with uh, prostitutes and tax collectors. These were people who probably had already uh, had an awareness of their sin. They were kind of closer to God than religious hypocrites. So if what you mean, when you say all sin is the same, what you really mean to say is that God hates religious hypocrisy. I would say, well, that you're right about that. But all sin is not the same. And this is really clear here. Notice as I read through this once again, notice there are degrees of punishment after the judgment. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done entire inside, and they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Degrees of punishment. You see that? And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So in verse 21 and verse 24, you have two clear examples. Verse 21 and 24, you have two clear examples of degrees of judgment. It would be something that we might want to keep in mind. They said they, he said they would receive greater judgment. Where's Sodom today? They say that Sodom is probably in the bottom of the Dead Sea. Might explain why it's so salty. The third thing about judgment is the judgment will be for what they've done and for what they've not done. And this is really important. A lot of times we think, well, I haven't done anything. That's exactly what, if somebody were to go before the great white throne of God and say, I haven't done anything, they would be lying. What they would mean is I haven't done anything that I thought was all that bad. And maybe they lived a pretty moral life and they've been pretty decent people and they hadn't cheated on their wife, hadn't cheated on their income tax, hadn't rooted for the saints or anything like that. They're like pretty decent people, you know? And so they're coming along. Isn't it funny when the lions and the saints play, we're rooting for the lions. Does that seem right to anybody here? I was thinking about that last night. Saints, lions, whose side should I be on here? But I was disappointed last night. Anyway, here I digress. I digress. As a matter of fact, I've completely lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> we'll be judged for what we've done and what we haven't done. And so if we go before the great white throne and we say, well, I haven't done this or I haven't done that. Or, 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 or I never did this or I never did that. Well, the answer could be, no, you didn't do that because it's what you didn't do that you're being judged for. What were these cities judged for? They were judged for not repenting. There are a lot of people who are religious that don't think they can be religious. They don't have to repent. They don't have to change. They don't have to turn. They don't have to, they don't have to respond to Christ's righteousness and turn away from their sin. And they're, but, so they, cause they go to church or they're religious or they got something going on like that or they came from a Christian family. They didn't repent. They won't repent. 
And you can't go to heaven unless you repent. So there's certain judgment coming if you don't repent of things you've done and things you should have done that you haven't done. And that's kind of an important thing to see. And the fourth thing to see here, and that is judgment and rewards are delayed. Judgment and rewards are delayed. The passage doesn't talk about rewards being delayed. We know that from other places in the Bible. But the passage implies that the judgment is going to be later, right? I mean, it specifically states the judgment is going to be later. What's really interesting is that it, it, we visited there and uh, we visited the city of Capernaum and we visited uh, the, the dig where Chorazin was and we skipped Bethsaida because there wasn't much to see there. And for many, many centuries, there was nothing much to see in any of these places. And I'll tell you why I believe that is. is Later on, there was a, a few hundred years after Christ, there was a great earthquake that wiped these cities out. Now, the major judgment that God was talking about is yet future beyond that. It's the judgment seat of, it's the great white throne judgment where unbelievers will stand before God and they'll be judged for their sins or because they rejected Jesus Christ and didn't accept Christ. But there, there's this evidence, this archaeological evidence that these cities were leveled in this earthquake that they were, they were the judgment of God. And I believe it's an evidence of that. My question today to you is this. So what? So what? Those who aren't saved will face the judgment of God. So what? Judgment of God is going to be in degrees. So what? The judgment is for what you've done and for what you haven't done. And judgment and rewards are delayed. So what? There are good preachers who are gifted differently than I am who don't spend much time on the so what. I don't agree with that. I don't think it's the job of the pastor to come to the church every week and teach this is what the Bible means and go home. I do not believe that. I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see this is what the Bible means and go home in the Bible. I don't see Jesus and the apostles teaching this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible means, and we go home. So if you want to criticize me for this, you're going to criticize me for years because I'm never going to stop. Because I believe that what God wants us to do is take the Bible, read the Bible, understand what the Bible says and what the Bible means, and then ask the critical question. Today, what does the Bible mean to me? What does God want me to do about this? I think a lot of Orthodox churches are dead because they're saying things that are true, but they're never making people think. So what does this mean to me? What should I do about it? What does God demand of me? What does God expect of me? What promises can I claim here? I'm just telling you that you don't want to go to a church that doesn't preach the Bible. You don't want to go to a church that doesn't explain the Bible. You don't want to go to a church that doesn't explain what the Bible says and what the Bible means. But my friend, you ought to go to a church that says, and this is what it ought to mean to you. In other words, there should be an application. I want to be faithful in that. God has just been twisting on my heart. In the last couple of weeks, I want to lead this church. God has called me to lead this church. I want to lead my family, and I want to lead this church. And I don't want to lead this church from my head. I want to lead this church from my heart. I don't want to lead this church from my feet. I want to lead this church from my knees. I don't want to lead the church in pride. I want to lead the church in brokenness and in humility. I don't want to lead the church in pretense, but I want to lead the church in sincerity. I don't want to lead the church through any personal charisma or personal enthusiasm, but from an anointing of God. I don't want to lead the church from the flesh, but I want to lead the church in the spirit. I don't want to lead the church backward, but I want to lead the church forward. Do you realize how easy it would be for me to lead the church backward? 
make all kinds of decisions, just all of the easy decisions, like let's not do this anymore, let's not do that anymore, let's quit this, let's quit that, let's not give any attention to this, let's not work on that anymore, let's just take it easy. I mean, that's what people are doing nowadays, They're kind of doing Christianity light. wouldn't be that hard to lead the church into apostasy, would it? We don't want to lead the church in decline. We want to lead the church in advance. And so God has been just stirring my heart about this. And I want to ask you some penetrating questions in response to this, the so what text that God has put before us today. Have you repented? And do you continue to repent? First question means, are you saved? Have you come to Christ, repented of your sins and turned to him? Somebody says belief and repentance are two sides of the same coin. It's the same thing. I believe, therefore I turn from my sin to God. Repentance means I get over on God's side against my sin. doesn't mean I don't ever sin again, but it means I hate my sin. I'm over on God's side against my sin. And you come to a point in your life where you want to turn away from your sin. Young people that are here, listen to every word that I'm saying. Don't pass notes or talk. I love you and I want you to hear everything I say. Sometimes I go to camps or retreats and conferences and I speak to young people. They ask me to go to other places to speak to young people. And I love them, I care about them, and I want them to do well. And so they listen to me because I'm the new guy on the block. But you guys, since I'm your pastor and you hear me talk all the time, a lot of times you're talking while I'm talking. And I don't want to be mean to you. I don't want you to not like me. But what's terrible is a lot of young people don't walk with the Lord because they they rejected things that they didn't listen to at church. So I'm just telling you, I don't want kids that come and hear me speak at camp walk with the Lord, and you're the kids that are under my pastoral care. You don't walk with the Lord. And so if you're here, I'm not being mean to you. I love you. Just talk later and text later and do that other stuff later on. Right now, I want to talk to you from the Bible and I want to have your attention and I want to have your heart and I want you to repent. I want your mom and dad to repent. If we repent, then we'll be saved. If we turn from our sin to God and belief, then we'll be saved. But if we really repented, we'll keep on repenting. Now, this is what we don't see much of in the church. We have a lot of people that come to church and they do their religious duty, but you rarely see them broken over their sin. You rarely rarely see them ask forgiveness for the things they've done that are wrong. You rarely see them weep and cry and seek forgiveness of God and fast and pray and show repentance. There's not a lot of repentance in the church. There's a lot of religious activity. There's a lot of religious duty. There's a lot of Bible-toting and pious talk. But there's very little genuine repentance. And I think one of the reasons why we see so little repentance in other people that we know need to repent is they have a foggiest idea what it looks like because they never see us repent over anything. So if you are repenting, a repentant person and you've come to faith in Jesus Christ by repentance, you will continue to repent unless you absolutely stop sinning after you get saved. You'll continue to repent. And so we need a church full of broken confessing, humble, repenting people that are continually repenting, continually seeking God, continually looking at their own souls and seeking forgiveness. And then unbelievers will say, okay, I don't think we're going to see a harvest of souls until they see us repent. I don't think we're going to see young people restored to God and, and repentance until they see our repentance. We just can't sit here and act like we got it all together and act like we kind of are the last word and, and we're the top of the heap. We just can't sit and act like that and really have the heart of a broken-hearted community. Only broken-hearted people are going to reach broken-hearted people. And my friend, there are no, there's no lack of broken-hearted people. They live all around us. They work with us. They're members of our own family. When we're broken, I think we will attract broken people. 
So how do we have the blessing of God and the favor of God upon our lives that we would have an anointing of God upon our lives that our lives would matter for something and we'd really be able to get a hold of other people? I've thought a lot about that this week. I'm seeking the Lord in a special way. And I, I thought back about a seminar I went to, Bill Gothard's seminar years ago. Many of you have gone to Bill Gothard's seminar. Well, it was an amazing thing. It was a phenomenal thing. Millions of people attended the seminar, basic seminar they called it. It was in major cities all across America. As you know, almost every major city in America had a Bill Gothard seminar. There were thousands of people who would attend the seminar. I told this uh, to the staff on Wednesday, and I told it on Wednesday night at prayer meeting, and I told it again on Thursday night at the deacons meeting, and I want to tell every one of you this story. It means a lot to me, and God has used it to stir my heart. I hope it will stir your heart. So I went to Cobo Hall. Lois and I went to Cobo Hall to hear this basic seminar, because all our friends were talking about it, and our family members were talking about it. So well, the guy's going to teach the Bible for hours on end, so we go. There's 10,000 people there, 10,000 people. It was amazing. Every single seat was full of a person with a person that was like had their little notebook full of scripture references, and there's just teaching of the Bible. There's no singing, there's no choir, there's no band, no nothing, just this little short guy teaching the Bible. And it changed hundreds and thousands of people's lives. There's no doubt about it. God moved in that. For 20 years, they filled stadiums and and coliseums in every major city in America with thousands of people who are hungry to hear the Bible taught and holiness taught. There's no doubt that God used that. There's no, there will never be a doubt in my mind that God uses it. It doesn't mean everything that a human being says is perfect or right. I wouldn't say that at all. You know I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying I saw the hand of God there. I experienced the favor of the blessing of God, the teaching of God on my own life. Well, you know, in the providence of God, a number of years later, I was asked, my family and I were invited to work directly with Bill, with Bill Gothard. And we went up to the Northwoods one day. We were a few years into this. We went up to the Northwoods Conference Center. And the Northwoods Conference Center is a beautiful place, um, a 300-acre lake up there called Wolf Lake and a 3,000-acre property. It looks like a national park. Uh, the roads are all paved and graded back like a national park. It has beautiful pines and birches and two or three lakes, a huge lake and other small lakes, places that you can snowshoe and cross-country ski and riding kayaks, but mostly it's just a place where people have gone to meet with God. And we were up there with, with Bill Gothard and, and with, with a number of the staff. And one night we had dinner. Now, on the second floor of this place where we had dinner in the conference center, in the, in the, in, there was a uh, dining hall. And the dining hall was a uh, was wood-paneled dining hall with um, uh, real comfortable chairs. And we had dinner. What they do is they had dinner kind of family style. You come together, and nobody leaves and, until everybody's dismissed together. And then Mr. Gothard, at the end of dinner, would always stand up, and, and then he would have some bit of wisdom or teaching. It was a great time. It was always interesting. He always had something really interesting to say. A teaching from God's word, an anecdote or illustration from something that happened in the ministry. A lot of times at a time like that, he would tell stories about how God had done things in the past, how God had provided in the past. Well, this night he got up after dinner and he stood up and he said, let me tell you how God provided a very, an impossible need that we had. When we were paving the North Woods here, he said, we're going to put an airstrip in here and we're going to pave the roads around the lake. We needed a certain kind of stone. He said, that stone, you could only get it from southern Ohio and it would cost a lot of money to ship it in, truck it in. And so he said, we decided to wait on that. We decided to pray that God would provide that stone somehow. They'd provide the money for that. In the meantime, he said, we decided we would go ahead and do the airstrip. There was a little hillock there. There was a bit of a hill. He said, they'd take a bulldozer in and they were going to take the, the, the hill out and they were going to put the airstrip in there. 
And so while they were praying for this special kind of stone that you could only get in southern Ohio, and they took the hill out, guess what was in the hill? The hill was made up completely of that exact kind of stone that was needed to pave around the lake. He told stories like that. Well, that's kind of neat. He could go on all night telling stories of God's provision. Well, he acted like he was going to stop. And I asked a question. Just kind of raised my hand. I said, hey, can I ask you a question? Andy, I don't know if you might even have been there that night. You were with us on our staff. So I raised, raised my hand. I asked a question. Bill answered the question. So he really had a story for every question. He had a teaching for every question. Well, I felt like I had latitude to do it. So when he was done, I, I asked another question and then another one. Nobody wanted to go anywhere. It was just a, a beautiful night. And he just kept telling stories of God's work, his favor, provision. And then I asked him this question. I said to him, you know, the basic seminar has been used to bless millions of people all around the world and change people's lives. How did you come to write that material that was in the basic seminar? And here's what he said. He said when he was a young man, he'd finish up his work on his master's degree. He was writing his master's thesis and he decided that he was going to give the first part of the year to God. And so he decided that he would take the month of January and that he would go away to the North Woods. And he went to, to Wheaton's uh, Honey Rock Camp and he got a cabin up there. He got permission to get a cabin and he spent a month fasting. He didn't eat for a month and he spent sought the Lord in a special way. He had this old car. I asked him, what did you, what did you drive up there? And he laughed and he said, I had this old uh, convertible that somebody had given me. And he, he hates being cold. He loves it hot. And But he had to drive all the way up to the North Woods and bitter cold temperatures in a convertible. And then he said, when he got there, he didn't know how to turn the heat on in the cabin. So the heat was tapered down for, for winter. And he was cold the whole time. So it wasn't eating, it was cold. But he said, I sensed the special presence of the Lord in that time that I had given the Lord. And it seemed like everything came together. I wrote as fast as I could, and I put all that material together. And then I brought it back. I began to teach it. And then without any advertisement, without any paid advertisement, without any kind of advertisement, just word of mouth advertisement, word of mouth, that thing spread literally around the world. Now, I was thinking about that this week because I knew it was Bill's practice there to go away for the whole month of January and fast and pray in the month of January. And the principle behind that was, he said, if you will honor God by giving him the first fruits, and God will honor you and he will bless you. And he just chose voluntarily, and the Bible doesn't command that. He just voluntarily chose to fast and to give God the whole month of January, and God blessed him. As I thought about that, I thought, I have a lot of things in my life in the past that God has done for me that are miraculous things. They're just wonderful things. They're, they're sins and problems in my life that I prayed for for years, that God delivered me from those things. But then I thought about 2012, and I thought about my family, and I thought about me, and I thought about you, and I thought about your kids. And I thought, well, is God going to do anything miraculous this year in 2012? Is, will God show his favor to our church Would God show his favor to our families? Would God do something like he would stir up a deep, like unquenchable thirst for God, say, in the heart of our daughter or our son or grandson or granddaughter? Would this be the year that he gave us a breakthrough on that thing that just is like a giant that blasphemes our God? Maybe he would if we would seek him with all of our hearts. Maybe he would if we would begin to pray and we would fast and we would maybe give him the first fruits of something. And I wouldn't even dream of telling you what you should give him. You you and the Holy Spirit can work that out. But I wonder how many people are here today and you would say, God, 
I want to give my life to you so that you would speak into my life. You tell me what you want from me. I'll give it so that I can have your favor and I can have your blessing on my life. And so that my prayers have, have power and have authority. So I talked to Tom Harmon this week and we scheduled him for February 2013. He was saying that he, he gives us, he has a special day of the week. It's Wednesday for him. He and his wife decided to set aside Wednesday as a Sabbath. Well, Wednesday isn't the Sabbath. Nothing in the Bible says Wednesday is the Sabbath, right? So there's no command that, you know, that keep the Sabbath on a Wednesday. Jesus is our Sabbath. He's completely fulfilled that. We understand. We'll talk about that more next week. But Tom's just saying, I love God and I want to seek God. So I'm taking a day and I'm seeking God on that day. He and his wife seek God on Wednesday. He doesn't, if he goes to a camp to speak, he doesn't speak on Wednesday. Somebody else has to speak because he's taking that whole day and he's seeking the Lord. And I called him and he said, at the end of the day, um, and he said, it was on Thursday. And he, he said, my wife and I got to the end of Wednesday night and we just felt almost a sadness because it had been such a sweet time to seek the Lord. And yet when I go and I hear people give their testimonies about hearing Tom Harmon preach, it's kind of interesting. Tom Harmon doesn't have any homiletical training at all. He doesn't have any Bible college or seminary at all. But he has an anointing on him and he's used of God in a powerful way. And I think it's because when a man or a woman decides, I'm going to give the first fruits to God or I'm going to seek God in a special way, that God will bless that person. If you long for the blessing of God, don't sit on your hands, but seek him in a special way. Giving something important. Bring a gift to the Lord. Bring the first fruits to the Lord. Give of yourself to the Lord. Fast, pray, seek the Lord, and he will be found by you. And so down through the centuries of the church, that's the way it's always been. If we're casual about honoring God, or giving God, giving to God, or seeking God, or prayer, or fasting, or use it in the Lord's day for ourselves. We can't expect our children or other people to flourish spiritually. We can't expect to have an anointing on our lives. We can't expect to be used of God if we're really just kind of casual because God doesn't really honor that kind of approach to himself. We shouldn't expect our friends and neighbors to repent if they don't, if we don't seek God and live in continual brokenness and repentance before God. If God's people don't repent, how can we expect lost people to repent? Here's what I believe. Our neighbors and coworkers and family members and our unbelieving and indifferent children, they need to repent and, but they're not going to repent until they see us repent. So will we repent that we haven't given ourselves continually to prayer? Will we repent that we have labored to gather comforts for ourselves and other and, and, and build little kingdoms for ourselves of comfort and ease? Will we repent? that we really don't care that much for people around us that are perishing and headed for judgment and for hell. Will we repent of that? There's a great woe and judgment that's coming, according to the Bible, according to our passage today. There's a great woe and judgment that's coming for those who reject Christ and who don't repent. And some of these people are neighbors, and they have our same last name, and we work with them. Think about it. You work with people every day, every day. You don't know when they're going to get in a car accident. You don't know whether they're going to drop dead or you are. And they're going to face the judgment of God. And did you do what you could do in order? Did you get the gospel to them? Did you sincerely get the gospel to them? Do you even care about that? Do you care? See, that's something to think about. So I'm praying yesterday morning. And I'm watching this old <laughs> preacher. And I'm, I'm like my grandfather's ship, but I do three or four things at the same time. I was praying, reading my Bible, studying, and watching this preacher. On, uh, and as a knock came to the door. So I go to the door, and here's a guy dressed real nice. There's a little boy with him dressed real nice with a tie on. They have a satchel of religious material. They said, do you take the Bible literally? 
I said, sure do. Well, it wasn't long before when we immediately recognized them to be Jehovah's, what my dad used to call Jehovah's false witnesses. The Jehovah's witnesses, you, you understand, they may come to your door, they're nice people, and they're sincere and so forth, but they don't believe that Jesus is God. It's a false cult. If you follow it, you go to hell. That's, that's the short version. So I don't mean to be mean. I just don't have a lot of time to talk here today. So here they are at the door, and the Bible says that I'm not to bid them Godspeed. So I took them through John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Of course, I had studied up on that, right? And Revelation chapter 1, and, and, and after a while, we, we decided we, wouldn't, we didn't want to talk anymore. And then, and then when they left, there was a little, little sweet little boy there named Ben with the guy. And after they left, they went down. I thought to myself, I felt a jealous pang in my soul. They're going to go talk to my neighbors now. They're going to go talk to my neighbors right up and down my street, my neighbors who need the Lord. And I'm a missionary. God called me and he put me on that block in that house so that I could make sure that all of those people who live near me know about my Jesus. You know, I had, I posted this on Facebook that Ronnie was a godly kid and he's still a godly man. And he posted on there. He said, here's what he did. Here's what Ronnie said on my Facebook though. He said, in my neighborhood when I was a boy, and he was an aggressive witness as a boy, uh, and he still is. He's a prison chaplain now. He said, in my neighborhood, when the Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door, he said, I would, you know, spar with them. He said, then I'd say to them, are you going to go to the neighbors? And they'd say, yes. He goes, hold on, I'm going to get my Bible. I'm going to go with you. And so he would go with them, and he would say, what they're saying is not true. Let me tell you the truth. Now, when I heard that, I thought, that knucklehead, you know. But that's exactly how I felt yesterday. It's like, no, no, you can't go tell that stuff to my neighbor. If they believe it, they're going to go to hell. So there are still cities and they hear the voice of woe crying out over them. And ours is one of them and yours is one of them. And there are people that live there. And are we going to repent? And are we going to seek for them to repent? I was just thinking about this and I want you to get, I want to give you a chance to pray today. Let's, let's, Ask God to help us be an anointed, prayerful, holy, God-seeking, real church that's moving forward and not back. A lot of churches that are in decline and plateaued these days. And some of the churches that aren't in decline or plateau, their attendance is going up. There are great exceptions to this, but many whose attendance is going up. It's not really because they're teaching the truth of God's word and people are getting saved in their holy lives and people are repenting. It's because they got the coolest game in town and people are going there. I'm not saying it's true of every church. There are wonderful exceptions to this. But many Bible-preaching churches are plateaued and they're in decline. And that includes this one. And it would not be right for us just to sit here when we have the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ and let our city go to hell without doing something to reach them. So I have suggestions and I'm going to be quick about this. Let's be disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about if you are a disciple, you make disciples because you're not a disciple unless you're making disciples who make disciples. Let's be disciples who make disciples. Let's be more concerned about mission than we are about maintenance of our church. Let's be more concerned about fulfilling the great commission that our Savior gave us than we are about keeping this plate spinning. Let's seek the blessing of God on our lives and families and cry out for it and fast and pray and search our hearts for sin and devote ourselves to prayer anew as a church. Let's stir our hearts up again to seek God in the fresh way. And then the 600 members of Evangel will be living up to their name. Let's move forward and not back. Let's give ourselves to God in this way. I'd like to find a way to make Evangel a praying church more than it is right now.
We got Awana on Wednesday night. We have youth group on Wednesday night. Tons of our people are involved in that, and that's great. So we have a tiny little group in prayer meeting. So we really don't have a, a significant time when the whole one church comes together and prays. And so I've been thinking about this, and I'd like for you to be thinking about some creative ideas. And I'll be thinking about some creative ideas, how we can get the whole church on our knees. Amen? Let's get the whole... Amen? Are you with me on this? Maybe I need to preach on this some more. Let's get the whole church on our knees in prayer. The whole church. Wouldn't God love to see a church on its knees in prayer, seeking God for these things? Let's do it. We'll figure out a way to do that. I know it can't all happen on Wednesday night. I understand that. I think there's some creative ways that we... Some creative means that we can use. It's this way. When a church is has the blessing of God on it, it's like, in other words, you don't want to look at a church and say, it's big and it's growing and it has more money, therefore it has the blessing of God. You don't want to believe that. That's not true, right? Because there are mosques that are growing, right? So this is a church is growing, has more money, doesn't mean it has the blessing of God on it. But one of the ways you can really tell if a church has the blessing of God on it is the temperature, the spiritual temperature of the people. And one way that you can almost absolutely and categorically tell the temperature of a church is, do the people pray. Do the people pray? Maybe that's where we can begin to repent. I'd like to have a bit of music right now. And I'd like to ask you, I know that you're used to just going home real quick and having something to eat. But I I thought it would be good for us to have a time where we can bend our knee to God. And we can say, God, I I repent of my prayerlessness. I repent of my lack of concern for lost people. Or God, I repent of my sin and I come to you as my Savior. So what I want to do here in a moment is we're going to stand. And then if you need counsel, we had a, a lady last week that came afterward. And she came to the Lord as her Savior last week. She's in our class this morning, a new Christian. And maybe you want to come. If you come and take my hand, then I'll, I'll take that as a sign that you need counsel about how to be saved. But I think it'd be wonderful for us to begin. We're here early in the year by bending our knee as a church and humbling ourselves as a church and bending our knee and saying, God, I'm going to pray. Some of you are older or you can't get around like that. God knows your heart. You stay where you are. But others of you, you know, you're young. You can you can move. Come up and pray. Let's stand together. Stand together. And it's going to open the altar for you to come and pray. And what I would suggest is you make a deal with the Lord. You just come and pray and say, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to give you, God. I want you to know I'm serious about seeking you. So I'm going to kneel here. And I'm just going to tell you, God, what I'm going to do and ask your blessing on my life, my family, and this church. Then I'm going to go back in my seat. So would you, would you come if God touches your heart to do it? Tell God what it is that you want to give him as the first fruits. Tell God what it is you want to give him. Tell him what it is you need from him. In the Bible, you know, for instance, fasting is not commanded. In the New Testament, there's no command to fast. But it's assumed you'll do it. It's assumed you'll fast. As an example of something the Lord says, if you choose to do this, I'll, I'll bless you. You'll have my ear. You'll have my favor. And so it might be that. It might be you set aside some days. You take a day, you go alone to be the Lord. Or might mean that you get in your truck in the morning, go to work, and you don't turn the radio on. You just spend that time talking to the Lord for this month. No radio in the truck, just talking to the Lord. Or maybe you could do without dessert this month. And every time you go for dessert, you think, oh, Jesus is the sweetness of my life. I don't need a dessert. I have Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that might be helpful to you, I just want to challenge you. 
if you're a young person, I challenge you specifically, you would also come to the altar, that you would tell God, God, God loves it when young people seek him. God loves to answer the prayers of young people. And if you're a young person, I, I call you just gently, humbly. Why don't you come see what God wants to do in your life? See what God, to do, what God wants to do with your life. And all the years that you have, you can still give to the Lord. What we have here, we ask God for. God would make our hearts tender. People of evangel would humble themselves, pray, and seek the face of God. This should be our whole day. It would be wonderful to spend the day. Just kind of just suggest to you, you go away and you have, you know, frivolous conversations. We all do that. But today, if you retain what you heard and, and what the Lord is doing in your heart, one of the ways to do that would be to, to get to be with the Lord if you have the time and open your Bible and, and read the Bible. It would be very appropriate to read the book of Amos. Tonight, we're going to preach the book of Amos. And the, the message of Jesus today and the message of Amos we're going to preach tonight are like absolutely dovetailed together. And so this is going to be like part two and a wonderful, wonderful character of the Bible, Amos. Uh, don't miss tonight. But like, so if you would come this afternoon, you would just spend some time with the Lord and spend some time reading the Bible, take a little walk and pray, maybe take a little drive and pray, and then and then come back to the evening service and We'll ask God to give us a special service tonight, a special anointing, a special touch from God for our church so that this church moves forward and not back, so that your family moves forward and not back. I'm going to be honest with you. Just like I was taking a walk the other night, and God just broke my heart. As I was walking, I was just thinking, God, I don't want my family to move backward. I want my family to move forward. I don't want to move backward. I want to move forward. I don't want all my stories to be stories in the past. I want my best stories to be ones that God is going to do in the future. God is still God. And he still is searching around the earth for people whose hearts are perfect towards him. Young, old, male, female, doesn't matter what color your skin is, bless God. Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing on these precious people that have gathered today to worship you. And I ask as we go in quietness of spirit today that you keep us from frivolous conversation. That you keep us from, Lord, from secular things and keep our hearts focused on, Lord, we, we can't be delivered from all that this world is, but I pray that we'd have this, we'd go with an abiding sense of your presence and the reality of you, that you would govern our thoughts and our, our words. Our, and, and that, Lord, that you would, would bless us and help us to be disciples who, who make disciples who are holy men and women of God, who pray, who, are, who have holy lives, who seek God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.